Lord Jesus, uh, indoors or outdoors, it really, we really would be fine either place. But without your spirit, this would be useless and, and a, a, a failure. So let it be, O oh God, that you use this time as a divine appointment. Could it be that on our calendars is marked this date, on heaven's calendar rather, for us is marked this date as a date that you are going to do a work to grow us and to change us, to break us and to mold us and to make us like Jesus. Give us ears to hear in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hypotheticals. We like hypotheticals because hypotheticals mean they're not really something we have to worry about. So we, we like to write it off as, as a hypothetical. Preacher and a farmer. Preacher speaking to a farmer says, uh, if you had 100 pigs, farmer, would you give 50 to Jesus? Farmer said, preacher, if I had 50 pigs, I would give, if I had 100 pigs, I would give 50 to Jesus. Ah, said the preacher. Farmer, if you had 50 pigs, would you give 25 to Jesus? Preacher, if I had 50 pigs, I would give 25 to Jesus. If you had 30 pigs, farmer, would you give 15 to Jesus? Oh, I would be happy to give 15 pigs if I had 30 to Jesus. If you had 10 pigs, farmer, would you give five to Jesus? Oh, preacher, if I had 10 pigs, I would, I would bring my five pigs to Jesus. It'd be his. Farmer, if you had two pigs, would you give one to Jesus? Hey, that's not fair. I only have two pigs. You see, it's, it's, it's all good until it's really about our life. I wonder if that isn't a bit of how we've read this story. It's Daniel chapter 6. And how many by just a show of hands have gone to a revelation or prophecy seminar, Daniel and Revelation prophecy seminar in your life, and you have, and, and Daniel 6 has been one of the messages. Come on. Maybe a brief mention. They don't use Daniel 6 in the prophecy seminar. You know, Daniel 6 is the lion's den. You know? All right. You've been to different ones than I've been to. Which is okay. <laughs> We know we skip right over Daniel chapter 7. Ooh, that's the good stuff. Daniel chapter 7, 8, 11 if we have to. But we like Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 8. But in our prophetic approach, in our community of faith, we have skipped right over, glided right over Daniel chapter 6. And I believe we have done it to our own detriment. We have, we have stolen from ourselves. Some of the primary message of the book of Daniel, the prophetic message. Remember the timelines, the, the visions give us the timelines. The narratives are the prophetic stories that give us the how. What is God looking to do in that final generation that lives at the end of that timeline? Our story today is number six, the all-time favorites. All right? Maybe you can guess what the, the number one Bible story, the most popular Bible story 
is overall, worldwide, David and Goliath, right? Number two, the nativity. Number three, Jonah and the whale. Four, Adam and Eve. Uh, I, I'm giving to these two all out of order because I, I forgot to mention the crucifixion. The crucifixion is number one, the number one Bible story. Then comes Daniel and the lions. It's number two. And then number three is Jonah and the whale. The nativity. Then number four is Jonah and the whale. Number five, Adam and Eve. And number six is Daniel and the lions. Let me give you a little bit of historical background. It's not necessarily, uh, you won't find it in scripture. Daniel chapter 6, we've got a story. Uh, Daniel, of course, uh, covers several kings. It's, it's out of order, all right? It's out of order. Daniel chapter 6, Darius. Daniel chapter 7 is Belshazzar. Well, that's, it's out of order. But it's out of order to get our attention. It's a thematic order. Daniel is not chronological. Daniel chapter 6 is in the Persian Empire, and then Daniel chapter 7 is back in the Babylonian Empire. But Daniel chapter 6 sets up Daniel chapter 7. What's happening in Daniel chapter 6 historically? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, the son of King Nebuchadnezzar, had, had ruled, and he had, in his, in his effort to save Babylon from being taken by the Medes and the Persians, had, of course, used force and used the strength of the army, but he had also religiously strategized to save Babylon, the city, if the rest of the empire were to fall. How did he do it? He went and he gathered all of the idols, the gods from the temples in the major centers of Babylon, the, the, the empire of Babylon, and he brought them to the city of Babylon. That was with the idea that if Babylon was, was attacked, the city, that the gods would have to protect themselves and in so doing would protect the city. So he gathered the gods, fruit salad a bit, of the gods and, and put them there in, in Babylon. Now, when the Medes and the Persians did come in, when they did overtake Babylon, the city, they had to set about reorganizing the political scene. That's alluded to in the chapter where, where Darius set up 120 administrators and then three over the 120, of which Daniel was the leader of those three. So we see some political reorganization. We know that whenever you reorganize something, there's some, there's some unrest, there's some confusion. There's, and so politically, it was a time of turmoil, as could be expected to some degree for a, a transition of power, not necessarily be in the same kingdom. It wasn't just a president exchange. It was two different kingdoms, ways of doing politics. And so there was some political upheaval, but there was also some religious upheaval, upheaval because all the gods from the empire were in Babylon, the city. There were a bunch of people upset about that because they were going to empty temples to worship. So Darius had to set about the process of restoring gods to the temples throughout the kingdom. Well, you can imagine that that was a bit of a process, not just because they couldn't overnight it in Amazon, but because there was also ceremonies that were had to be a part of this. They had to have a ceremony for its departure from the city and, and maybe several more along the way. And then a ceremony would arrive that it's 
its home city. And so there was all of this, this, this transition. That's important, or at least helpful. I have to remember the mic doesn't go with me. It's at least helpful because here is spiritual and political upheaval. And it sets up the prophetic narrative perfectly. Because what happens in a political and religious upheaval is what Satan uses to play his pieces. All right. In Daniel chapter 6. Excellent. Daniel chapter 6, we're going right to verse 4. We, we know the story. We've got to fill in some parts. Just read, read the verses we'll skip over. But verse 4, the administrators, the satraps, tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. I just want to pause right there and say it over and over and over. Daniel did not remove himself from impacting the world around him. He was part of it. He, had, he was a piece of the He was a politician. He was part of the government. He had retreated to some far corner of the empire. He was deeply rooted in it. And that's what led to Daniel's impact. So they tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. It sounds like, sounds like a government we've been praying for. That was bipartisan, if you're wondering. <laughs> verse 5. Daniel chapter 6, verse 5. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with what? The law of his God. We could go home right now and we would know the whole story. Political and spiritual upheaval. A small group of minds that come together to say, let's, let's call this guy out. In the midst of spiritual and, and political upheaval, that's when fingers start getting pointed. Hey, it's their fault. It's their fault. It's the other's fault. And so this, this, is, this is exactly how it plays out prophetically. I just want to remind you, we're not just reading a nice little primary Sabbath story. We are reading a prophetic narrative. Spiritual and political upheaval lead to pointing fingers. It doesn't sound very strange. And they find that they, they, they cannot, there's nothing there. He's diligent. He's faithful. He's hardworking. He doesn't remove himself. He's not, he's not inviting persecution, but he does not remove himself knowing that that's where God has called him to make an impact. And so they say, there is nothing we can, we, can, we can call foul on, except as it has to do with the law of his God. And beloved, you know, I know, that prophetically, that's exactly how it plays out. It's not an accidental or an incidental reference. It's a prophetic statement. There will come a time 
when the issue becomes the law of our God. If they find other issues, that's shame on us. Daniel 6 and verse 10. So they got the king to agree. Why did the king agree? You have to, you have to realize, why would, why would the king have agreed to this? For 30 days? Why? Because their idea made perfect sense in the midst of political and spiritual upheaval. Why don't you keep, why don't you bring everybody together, unify everybody over a common theme for just a little while? Darius, the, the, the Persian kings were much like the Babylonian kings. They did not require worship of their gods. Number one, number two, they, the kings of the Persian empires, were not recognized as gods themselves. But at a time of political and religious crisis, it calls for new measures, new methods. And so they come to the king and they're, they're saying, we've got to do something. Look, at people are just, just, just pointing the fingers in all directions. Let's do something. Well, we're not used to, that's not really what, we, that's not a law that we're typically used to doing in this country. I know, but let's just do it for a short time for the good of all. Oh, this Daniel chapter six is, is, is arguably more prophetic than any other chapter, if you could say so. Daniel chapter six and verse 10. Go down now. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. He gets down and prays. Daniel knew that it had been signed. He neither placed himself unnecessarily in harm's way, nor abandoned his duty. Just as he had done before. Almost as if Daniel knew that we would read one day and wonder, when the decree comes, when the law comes, are we supposed to keep doing what we've been doing? Are we supposed to be faithful? Can we fudge a little bit? I wish I could jump ahead, but it would be spoiling tomorrow night. Okay, let me just tell you. Daniel, Daniel's prayer. We have, we have totally misread three times a day. We've read these prayers like, Lord, bless my food and thank you. And then he eats or something like that. Or now as I lay me down to sleep, take my soul. No, you'll find out. That Daniel labors in prayer. He faints over his prayers. This man labors and wrestles with God. He is, he is, he is engaged. They didn't even have to see him. He went up to his room. They could hear him. The final generation will not be the ones in the back rooms drawing off the dates. And, and what the, the latest move from the palace or the Vatican is. They will be laboring on their knees with God. I'm telling you, it's not that we're, we're, we're disengaging from the who and the when. That's all important. The, way, the only reason I'm leaning or tilting the other direction is because we, we have been imbalanced. We've known the who and the when, but we've not known the how. How, God, do you expect us to live on that timeline? 
Daniel's concern is not for himself. Let me say this, and I've said it in several different ways, but if your most important asset is yourself, if what you do is to protect yourself by saving yourself, by hiding away, then then when it becomes a crisis, you will do whatever it takes to protect your most important asset. But what God has called the final generation to do, those living on that prophetic timeline, is to abandon themselves and to live for the faithfulness of God, for his truth, for his kingdom. And if that means their lives are in peril, then so let it be. Verse 12. So they went to the king. And they spoke to him about the royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? Do you, do you see how, how incredibly strange this is? Here's a king that is part of a system that is not, does not recognize the king as a god. They're willing to throw even their own gods away for 30 days. The, the, the crisis, they actually see this as a good thing. This will, this will politically and religiously, this will bring, bring financial stability to the kingdom. They're willing to even get rid of their own stuff, any God, except you. Well, they live in a world of pluralism, pluralism anyway, so it's not a big day. We can move around. We can choose a different God. But for Daniel, that's not an option. What did they say here? Did you not publish a decree that if anyone prays to any God or human being except you, your majesty, they would be thrown into the lions? Then the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Oh, this is setting us up for some, some drama. Here is a law, maybe a day old, that cannot be changed. And it's being pitted against an eternal law that cannot be changed. A law just recently made contradicts the eternal law of God. It's, it's a conflict, not just of, of politicians, but of two gods. This is the great controversy context. Well, the king finds out that he, in that time of crisis, has been duped into something that he didn't want to have happen. So he reluctantly places Daniel in the lion's den. The very next morning, he's there asking. There's some, there was some sort of timeline. Maybe it was, maybe it was the sunrise. And as soon as the sun began to lighten the eastern sky, the king was out the door, flying down the hallways and across to the lion's den. And he says in verse 22, Well, he calls in verse 20. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? 
Verse 21, Daniel answered, may the king live forever. Verse 22, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions and they have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Can I translate? I was faithful. I was faithful. Apparently our faithfulness gives God permission to do what he could otherwise not do. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. This winter, reading through these stories, again, I read chapter 6, and a line right here in verse 22, that I had never read that way before. Let me, let me paint the picture for you. The scenario. How does it look? Daniel is standing on a kind of a boulder and there's a shaft of light from the open, open rock or covering that's kind of shining on him and he's standing there and the lions are generally uh, napping or content. Uh, they're peaceful. It looks like maybe even Daniel had a, had a, had a night's sleep with the, with the kitty cats. That's not what the Bible says. That wasn't Daniel's testimony that morning. He didn't say that, that, God, that God tamed the lions. He didn't say, my God has sent an angel and tamed the lions. He didn't say, my God has sent an angel that fed the lions. He said, my God has sent an angel that shut the lion's mouth. Do you know what that meant for Daniel all night? That as he stood there in the darkness of this tomb, the piercing eyes of the lions pierced into his very being. They paced all night long. Daniel didn't know would there be a moment in which their mouths would be freed all night long. Those lions murmured and growled and paced and push, they wanted to eat Daniel. God only shut their mouths. We've read this as if this was some sort of, of safari. Daniel, during the, let me, let me just borrow a line and see if it connects. During the time of trouble, during a dark night, Daniel feared for his life the entire night. My God, shut the lion's mouths. All night they eyed him. He was in danger the entire night. But the lions couldn't hurt him. Let me just leave this story hanging there for a moment. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel now has his first vision. This is his first vision. And of course, the others were given Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel was, was allowed to interpret, even given those visions. But this was his first vision. And he sees the winds of strife, four great beasts paralleling the metals in the image of Daniel chapter 2. The fourth beast is terrible and dreadful. There's ten horns and ten kingdoms. And... Uh, 
they're divided from the fourth beast, of course. There's a unique 11th horn that comes up, and that little horn tears out the three and begins to assert itself against the kingdom of God. Words that are repeated mean something. They're significant in Scripture. And for Daniel chapter 7, the, the Aramaic word translated dominion is repeated. It occurs seven times in the chapter. Dominion, dominion, dominion. This is a war. The great controversy for dominion. The religious turmoil, the political turmoil that we see on this planet is just a facade, just a distraction, just commotion. The real controversy is behind the scenes for dominion of this planet. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, it reads, he, that is this little horn, will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and laws. We have correctly translated this as an attack on, uh, an attack on God's sacred law, specifically the fourth commandment. And it's combated with other laws that negate the eternal law. And those laws, according to Daniel chapter 6, will be presented as unchangeable and irrevocable. But they will be pitted against the eternal, unchanging, and sacred law of God. Daniel chapter 7 plays out Daniel chapter 6. Verse 9, Daniel chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The court was seated. Now, verse 10, the court was seated and the books were open. This is the only chapter in the Bible that uses that title, Ancient of Days. It's unequivocally referring to the dominion has always been his. He's Ancient of Days. The dominion is always his. And that's the world that Daniel lived in. Let the king come. Darius, thank you. To, welcome to the throne. But he lived in the context of a different kingdom. We are only concerned about who's on the throne or who's in the Oval Office or who's in control in our church or who's elected leader. If we live in the, in the, 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 the world will be solved or the, the crisis, the controversy will be solved by some earthly measure. But Daniel lived with the idea that the ancient of days, it was his dominion. It's always been his dominion. God's response was to order and organize a judgment. God sets up the judgment. Let me remind you. Let me remind you this. Daniel's narrative. This is Hans Larndell. We, we've pointed these lines out. Daniel's narratives of religious loyalty to God's sacred law by a faithful few ones provide the essential types or prefigurations of the nature of the final crisis for God's people in the time of the end. Daniel and how faithful he was and the prayer warrior posture that he took when laws were enacted, it would, it would seem, it would seem, beloved, forgive me, I'm not trying to step on your toes. God should guide you, not me. But it would seem like it could be recommended to Daniel when the law came to get out. Get out of Babylon. 
that Daniel believed that God had called him to such a time and such a place to make an impact, and that only by being faithful in an unfaithful environment could he set the example. That becomes the, the, the essential types, prefiguration, this pre-advent judgment. This is what clearly establishes God's right to act on behalf of his people. We've had a lot of bad press about a pre-advent judgment. But what Daniel experienced in Daniel chapter 6, God was able to do on my behalf what he could not otherwise do because I was found innocent in his sight. The pre-advent judgment gives God the permission, the authority to act on our behalf in that dark night of crisis when the lions are seeking to destroy us, God can say, legally, I can protect you because you've been faithful. Now, lest anyone misunderstand, faithfulness itself is birth because of Jesus. It's not, I earned something. Don't go there. You're missing it all together. But the faithfulness that we have in response to the relationship with Jesus, our journey with him, allows him then in that dark night to be our protector. The judgment, by the way, is in favor of the saints. That's verse 26 of Daniel chapter 7. It's for our good. It's to protect us. Oh, beloved, the pre-advent judgment is a bad news. It's God saying, Michael, I, I know what's coming, and I want legal grounds to take you through. The final generation. Let me just read for you, rapid fire, four verses. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 4. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. Verse 10, three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Verse 20, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Verse 22, they have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, before you your majesty. Four verses in chapter 6, repeating the same narrative. Daniel had been faithful continually. He had constantly been faithful. Here is the patience of the saints. It's the same, it's the same conclusion that the New Testament has arrived, that this final generation will be faithful, diligently faithful. Through what? Through turmoil, through crisis, through trying times. And then when the great crisis, the night, a time of trouble, you may call it, says, uh, when it passes, Daniel says, I've lived faithfully. If, if, if the lions take my life, then the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So let it be. Again, what is our number one concern? If my life is my number one concern, if my job is my number one concern, concern, then it will cause me to live and to act in such a way that protects that at all costs. If my life is my number one concern, then I will live and act in such a way to protect my own life. But if God's truth, if God's kingdom, if, if, my, if living faithfully, setting an example of him is my number one concern, it will change the way I live. 
That's Daniel's story. Chris Hodges, in his book, The Daniel Dilemma, Dilemma, he's a senior pastor down in Alabama, the Highlands, the Church of the Highlands or the Highlands Church, something like that. In his book, The Daniel Dilemma, he writes, take inventory of your life. That's what Daniel chapter six calls us to do. Take inventory of your life. Who am I living for? We can baptize it. We can use sacred or righteous language. But really in the end, who am I living for? Uriah Smith in his book, Daniel Revelation, says the same thing. Says, hey, this, this, the story of Daniel chapter 6 is a light that shines down the path for the faithful. Says, this is how you live. Great controversy. Though God's people will be surrounded by enemies who are bent upon their destruction, yet the anguish which they suffer is not a dread of persecution for the truth's sake. They fear that every sin has not been repented of. What's the greatest conflict? What's the greatest question? What's the real struggle? Is it the lions? Is it the persecution? Absolutely not. In Daniel's mind, the lion's den was a a non-issue. The question for him was, am I being faithful? Am I living faithfully? Oh, God, he spent that night in the lion's den not worried about the lions, but worrying about him and his God. And I say worry, that's probably not even the right way to say He spent that night in earnestness about his relationship. Oh, God, how are we? Is there anything between me and you, dear God? Is there anything between me and you? That was the great night. The lions, we're going to get to heaven one day and sit down with Daniel. We're just going to say, Daniel, 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 tell us. Who tell us about the lions? Lions. Remind me, what, what, are, you, what are you thinking? What are you, in your book, Daniel chapter, it's in chapter six. You know, when you pray those three prayers, He said, I spent an entire night talking to God, confessing my life and asking him to break my heart again. It was such sweet communion. Oh, yeah, that's right. There were lights. I'm not trying to belittle the fact that there was real danger. But beloved, we've been running from the lions. That's not even that's not even our issue. That's not even the test. The final generation, again, will be a a generation that is faithful. Their testimony is faithful. They will have one issue. The world around them will be able to draw one issue with them, and it will have to do with the law of our God. It's clear. Prophetically, it is clear. No question. That will be the issue. The final generation Living in that timeline of Daniel chapter 7, the fourth beast, the ten horns, the little horn, uprose the three, all of that, the final generation that lives in that, as that little horn speaks and persecutes and seeks to blaspheme, 
the final generation in all of that will be a praying generation wrestling with God and the world around them will say we've got no problem with them except for the law of their God. One more line from Great Controversy. <laughs> I love this one. Will the Lord forget his people in this trying hour? In that night, in the, in the lion's den, will he forget them? And then it asks a series of rhetorical questions. Did he forget faithful Noah? Did he forget Lot when the fire came down from heaven? No. Did he forget Joseph surrounded by idolaters in Egypt? No. Did he forget Elijah when the oath of Jezebel threatened him with the fate of the prophets of Baal? No. Did he forget the three worthies in the fiery furnace? No. Did he forget Daniel in the den of lions? No. Will he forget you? Hallelujah. In 2004, I was a single pastor, and I, I did one of the brightest moves of my life. I went and bought a brand new car, but I didn't buy any cars. I had mapped out my next 10 years. Okay, in the next 10 years, I will be married. So what is my wife going to do? We'll probably have a kid or two. So I'm going to need a car that accommodates kids. This was, I, I, I had this thing mapped out. The poor salesman, they had no idea what he was dealing with. I knew I was going to have kids. Uh, I, I, needed, I needed to have a roof rack because we're, we're going to go with a canoe or something. We're going to need a roof rack. All right, we're going to need to tow the kids' bikes. are going to. I mapped it all out. Ended up buying a Honda Pilot. Eight passengers. No, I didn't know how much I was single. I didn't know who I was marrying, how many kids she would tell me we're having. So I said, I got to go. I got to go all the way. Eight passengers. Here we come. I'm a single pastor. got an eight passenger SUV. Because of God's promises are faithful, I knew that he would provide. Amen. <laughs> My wife gets here in the morning. So I, in 2004, I bought this Honda Pilot and have driven it for the last 17 years. Uh, and it's cranked its miles up until... Until it's become clear that my wife no longer asks me when we go on road trips, are we taking your car or my car? She's not, she's not willing to take my car. It's just not as faithful. And so the other week, I, I'm a little bit of a feeler. I had to put up my car for sale. I wanted to tell you a funny story because we're in no hurry. It's raining outside. Uh, I put it up on Marketplace or Craigslist, and I get a buyer, and I go meet them at a at a local community church in the parking lot. And uh, I take my my son, my five year old son, says, "Hey, Dad, can I come?" Yeah, man. And watch your dad work. He comes with me. He's got he's got a, he's got a little matchbox plane, and uh, so we're standing in the church parking lot, and they're looking it over, and then we're turn our attention to each other and we start talking. Well, you know, could we take a, a hundred or two? Well, could we? My son, in the meantime, is just busy himself. He has his matchbox plane and he's flying it around the parking lot. And then I, I hear these people kind of go, <sighs> and I look and my son is flying his plane down the side of my car. And there's a chemtrail all the way down. 
Well, I drove my car home that day. <laughs> anyway, so I saw, I saw my car. All right, so I, I, I sold my car and I'm having to dig through it and uh, clean it out. 17 years of memories and I keep a pretty clean car, but you know, there's little things that get stuck here and there. And uh, my wife is helping me, Melanie, she got this garbage bag. Oh, we don't need that. Yeah, I was nice. And I, I go to take the garbage bag and put it into our dumpster. And, and, and at the top of it is this cardboard paper looking thing. I, I look at it and, it and it was a gift card, a cardboard gift card. It was given to us 10 years ago for our wedding anniversary, uh, our wedding. And uh, somehow it had slipped between some seats and disappeared. It's cardboard, it's crumbled, it's crunched, it's in the, our garbage bag. And I, I, I'm just, wait a minute. Let me just take it out, and I'm punching the number. So I take it inside, get my computer and punch in this number. It's not a visa or, a, or even a store that I know of. It's like some online, I have no idea. I type it in, it's, it's been crumbled up in, two, in the seats for 10 years. I type in this number. Welcome. What gift would you like to select? Hit the button. And a display of different gifts. Unfortunately, there wasn't like a wave runner or a motorcycle or something like that. But there were nicely priced gifts. And I thought, well, 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 okay, so if I pick one, okay, now what, is it going to ask for my credit card number? I picked one, select. Congratulations, your gift is on its way. Wow. Listen, if for 10 years that crumpled cardboard gift card is still good, the God of heaven that walked into the fire furnace with the three words, that stood with Daniel through that night of conversation in the lion's den. His word is still good. And our fear of a coming lion's den is misplaced. If a, if a gift card is still good 10 years later, hallelujah, God's word. Don't worry, I got you, he says. I'll go with you. But what I need you to focus on, what I need you to answer is how is your faithfulness with me? How are we doing? Is there something between us? Are you faithful in all that you do? Will those who come behind you as the as the singer of the 90s, Steve Green, sing, are those who are coming behind you, will they find you faithful? What's your testimony? I'd invite you. There is a, there's a QR code right here. Shane is going to come up and, and sing for us, but there's a QR code right here that, that you just take your phone, and it works. You take your phone. And, uh, and it will capture it. 
on there is an opportunity to submit a prayer request. Maybe there's there's an area of your life you don't want to you don't want to you don't have to put it, but you would you would crave a, a community of people praying for you, a prayer warrior, a modern day Daniel praying for your life for victory in an area. You just you just put that there. They'll pray for you. You don't even have to put your name, but you can put your friend. You, why not? There's also an invitation to be part of a Bible study. Or if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, or you know that your life has been a public testimony of living against Jesus, and you need to make a public testimony of living for Jesus, and you need to be baptized, then you can put that there too. But this invitation, this QR code is an invitation, prayer request, a Bible study, a baptism, whatever it is that God is calling you to do, to be faithful to him, to live like Daniel. To live like Daniel means that you will also experience the lion's den like Daniel. Because God will find you faithful and legally in the rules of the great controversy. He says, I'll protect you. But if he doesn't, he says, I, I need your testimony. Can I borrow your testimony? Can I borrow your blood to grow the kingdom? Why not? This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.